Hello, and welcome to the Movie Spotlight on the Comic Book Page Podcast. My name is John Mayer. In this episode, we'll have a spoiler-filled discussion about a movie we think you'll enjoy. episode i am joined by my sister we're gonna have a spoiler filled discussion on two movies we're gonna do this in two parts the first movie is now you see me and then i'm pretty sure people can guess that the next movie is going to be now you see me two oh i thought it was now you don't that would have been a equally good title for the sequel it's not what they used and since we're in the room together now you see me yes i was hoping and now you see me too i do see how it works that way Fortunately, this is a movie about magic, not comedy, because clearly we don't know comedy. No? Uh-uh. Uh, part of why we rewatched Now You See Me, we'd seen this. It was to, we haven't seen the second one. Yes, that one I think came and went in the theaters. We didn't even notice when it happened. Now you have me wondering if I noticed when this hit the theaters because we saw this on vacation. Well, uh, I was thinking the second one. Yeah, yeah. The first one we'd heard about, we hadn't seen. We were on a vacation. And saw it on a cruise ship. Mm-hmm. Really enjoyed it. We loved it. We saw it with our dad and with one of our cousins. Mm-hmm. And it was funny because we had been talking with the cousin about how we all enjoy movies that give you pieces of a puzzle to put together and to be figuring out with the characters what's going on here. Is this part of the story important towards solving the plot or is it a red herring, or is it just some little tidbit thrown in for fun? Well, and this is a heist movie with a couple of heists done by magicians. There's a how did they do that? Yeah. And then also, who is motivating? Who's who's behind all of this? What's the goal? So there's a couple of mysteries to kind of solve. Well, and the heists are very Robin Hood style. Mm-hmm. Very much a take from the rich, give to the poor. So part of the what's motivating this is... What's motivating who's being targeted? What's motivating who it's being given to? It's easy to ascribe a motive of a heist of they want the money, but when they're taking it and then giving it away. And within moments mm -hmm. of taking it. Yes. I mean, literally, they've got it and it goes somewhere else, not even passing through their hands for any length of time. Yeah. So there's what's causing them to do this. Why are they going to this amount of trouble? Yeah. And- it was one of those things where they, they do a good job very early in the film introducing the different people, the mm-hmm. different magicians. From four different parts of the country. Mm-hmm. Getting them together. Um, they they did a good enough job, I guess, kind of later, you know, with the, the backstory of this magic society. And they knew enough about the myth the mythology of the lore to know that they had been picked. Which is, because otherwise, why go from, you know, where you're at in one city? Because I think one of them was in New Orleans or whatever. And then gets to New York to be at the warehouse, uh, the uh, the apartment. I think one's in Florida, one's in Chicago, one's in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. one's in New York, I think. Well, and the one in New York is the one that had the least amount of means to get to another city if he'd had to. Yeah. You know, but it also raises a question as to how uh, Mark Ruffalo's character, the guy in the hoodie initially, yeah, on subsequent days was in all of these places. Yeah, well, yeah, you take a week off from work. Go travel in a hoodie. Just the travel time between the cities, though. Yeah. Clearly he flew, but I 
Yeah. Logistics. It's magic. Well, and one of the things that intrigued me in the movie is they used Hollywood magic in combination with actual illusion and sleight of hand and magic to really beef up the magic in the movie and create a sense of magic. You know, there's places they did that that didn't bother me at all. There were one or two that did kind of annoy me because using movie magic to facilitate the filming of an illusion, but it's an illusion that feels like it could be done. In other words, I don't expect them to do the whole David Copperfield sort of, this is how we're going to make somebody fly. Okay, do do kind of movie magic for that. But frankly, it wasn't until when we were watching the special that they actually show they're talking with David Copperfield and the girl is in the bubble type that scene. It's like, okay, that's a little far-fetched, but it's, you know, we've actually gone and seen David Copperfield mm. live. The stuff that he can do without movie magic. Yeah. You know, as long as they stayed within that realm. But there were one or two places, like when they bring out the teleportation machine mm. and there are all these things, you know, flying around, you know, and then poof, it's there or whatever. And it had to have come from above. Yeah. We know that from the arc of the story. But uh, one of the characters, one of the, the four horsemen, she like throws a scarf or whatever, and suddenly there are these huge sheets of cloth flying around magically, and then they're just kind of gone. Mm -hmm. It's like that stretched believability too far for me. Yeah. You know, if it had been something that felt like it could have been done, you know, even if it had just been, again, jets of, of you know, smoke or something. Well... The one that I thought they did beautifully, and I thought was probably an awful lot of movie magic, but felt like if given enough time, somebody mm -hmm. could do it with real illusions there, was when they were walking in for the first time to the apartment in New York, and they had the logo they would end up using, kind of, I don't want to say etched into the floor, but sunken slightly, and then maybe three feet away from that, a pitcher filled about a third of the way full with water. So so what's happened at this point for the listeners? If you haven't seen the film, go see it. It's a wonderful yeah. film. I want to start with that. It's amazing. The the four that have been chosen, street level magicians or whatever, go into this room. There's the thing. And there's a rose on the floor. Mm -hmm. And it's almost psychology at this point. Somebody's going to pick up the rose, see the vase or whatever to go put it in. And it's rigged where when that happens, the water spills out in such a way that it's going to fill that and trigger the thing you've set up. Yeah. Because they've the the apartment was set up for them, and they had whoever's the the society behind it um, had a theoretically infinite amount of time to set it up. Yeah. So I'm willing to give them. Well, and what happens is when the water goes into the logo, it triggers um, dry ice mm -hmm. to fill the room with swirly smoke. It's a special effect sort yes. of a thing, yeah. And that's the thing. That's where a lot of Hollywood magic seemed to come in because there seemed to be more smoke machine amount of smoke than I think dry ice simply on its own triggered by the water, that small amount of water going well, in. Well, and we don't know that done. it was literally dry ice. It was just one of the guys saying this yeah. is how it's done. It could have literally been smoke machines. Yeah. But then once the dry ice the smoke gets to a certain level somebody's playing with a light switch if this is a pretty dim apartment let's see if the electricity is mm -hmm. on and doing that seems to trigger i think it's three projectors three or four kind of projectors that may either be like tv sort of projectors or laser projectors mm -hmm. and it's a hologram display which is why they needed all the smoke in the room yeah 
to kind of act as that that virtual screen or yeah. 3D screen. Well, and that's the thing. It makes a seemingly perfect 3D image. And that's the, I don't know many people who could set something up to, I don't want to say randomly, but you you have faith that unmonitored, the smoke will get to the right amount, that the projection will show you everything you need to see on it. They at least made the effort of having the smoke to to catch the image. Yeah. How many sci-fi shows have we seen where they've got the holographic display in the middle of nowhere? Yes. Well, and like I said, that's where I'm saying that they did a great job of using the Hollywood magic Mm -hmm. to make the magic and the illusions feel real and believable and take it up to that next wow level. Well, and for me, when they did that kind of a stuff, it's like, yeah, clearly they, they did the, the the image, you know, on the computers, composited in later, but they sold how it could have been there in the room. Yeah. And when they get to five points late in the movie, which is just a, a location in New York, and there are projectors set up against the sides of the building... And this is stuff that, if you go on YouTube, I forget what the, the, the right phrase is, but there's a technique for projecting onto a building another image to where you can make it look like the building, you know, parts of it are crumbling apart or something. Or yeah. the window is gone or a window appears sort of a thing. Yeah. It's, it's, it's literally an augmented reality kind of a thing. Yeah. And there are a couple of shots where you actually see the projector, the light kind of casting off or whatever. And it was really well done. And when they were projecting themselves into, you know, those images, they show this one rig at one point where there's a, a pole going up with, like, lights. Uh, around l- the pole. Light tubes around the pole. So one for each one. And then cameras with a circle ring of light of, you know, on that. So, and they're, they're standing on, you know, kind of the, the three sides of the circle, if you will. Because at that mm-hmm. point, there's the three of the ho- four horsemen. And it's like, okay, you know, there's a little bit of, of movie magic for, you know, how it catches them, but not the background, that kind of a thing. And you could argue depth of field, whatever. They gloss over the technical. Yeah. But it, it they sell the concept. But the three-dimensionality of the images they're projecting onto the sides of the building is so beautiful to look at that you want to believe what they're doing. Okay, quick question then. Yeah. They've gone from one place that was clearly a hologram because people run through them to another place to another place. That last place, they go running off to the side of the building, jump off, turn into the money. But then later we see them on another rooftop running. Yeah. So were they there when they jumped off and was the money projected on? I mean. I don't think they were there. I think the running up there was a projection. I think it was like the t-shirt cannons. That shot the money, rise the projection, running, running and there's out. something that shoots the the money out. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And then they really are running on the rooftop because presumably they're running from where they had just put the money into uh, Morgan Freeman's car. Yeah, the cast on this, geez, excellent cast. Mark Ruffalo is an FBI agent. You've got Morgan Freeman as a guy who's uh, a former magician now debunking magicians. I'd like you to slow down and give it to them the way you gave it to me. Okay, so you've got the Hulk as an FBI agent. Um, don't make him angry. You wouldn't like him when he's angry. Thank you. You've got uh, Lucius Fox from the Batman movies as the, the magic debunker. Uh, Michael Caine, also known as Alfred from the Batman movies, plays the rich guy who is uh, bankrolling the Four Horsemen. Of the Four Horsemen, one of them uh, is uh, uh, Jesse Eisenberg, who played Lex Luthor in Batman vs. Superman. 
There we go. Another one is Woody Harrelson, who I don't think has any superhero movie credits, but of course, you know him best as Woody from Cheers. I know. Everybody knows his name. It's because his character name and his name are the same. But he makes me wonder if he didn't know his other name. He really has grown up. And I, he had a line in here of, um, if you're rating me as the has-been, I really appreciate that because I thought I was a never was. Yeah, I'm flattered. I always consider myself a never was. Yes. And it's funny because he's had that iconic TV role, but he's also done a ton of movies. He has. Yeah. And really made a name for himself. And again, he's brilliant in this. And then we've got... He's the mentalist here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Eisenberg plays the uh, the stage, you know, the the stage magician, kind of the cards and all of that sort of a thing. Um, Woody Harrelson plays the uh, the mentalist. You've got Elsa Fisher who plays the escape artist, essentially. Yes. And former assistant to Jesse uh, Eisenberg's character, mm-hmm. and Dave Franco who plays a uh, another sleight of hand kind of a guy, really an up and coming, the junior member of the team. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting because I think Jesse Eisenberg's character of Atlas, which is his last name, Daniel Atlas, I think. Yeah. Or J. Daniel Atlas, something like that. Yeah. I think he was needed because he's got the logistics, the control freak aspect. He's the very confident one. And that comes into play several times. His confident, I can do anything the rest of you can do, but it really works well to have each of you do the things you do well as a distraction, which is part of, the, of what makes magic work. But I think doing some of the illusionist aspects, they needed him. Yes. But without his confidence and his belief, I can do anything the rest of you can do, the scene on the airplane mm-hmm. with the Michael Caine character wouldn't have worked. Absolutely. The personalities help too, but I'm thinking specifically yeah. the skill set. Woody Harrelson's character of the mentalist, absolutely essential to this. And the way they introduced how he does the mentalism and how he uses it. Yeah, the the hypnosis, the the con artist aspect to him. Yeah. And when in the, the second show the four horsemen do, he's doing a thing of, okay, you're going to go after the the uh, the quarterback. You'll know who he is because it's freezing. He says freeze. Mm-hmm. Okay, and it kind of sets it up. But if, if you're thinking a step or two ahead, you know that there's an Interpol agent and an FBI agent in the audience. The they're four- being hunted by the police. Somebody's going to yell freeze. Well, and the four horsemen have had a spotlight put on. Yes. These two officers in the audience. I mean, they know they're there. They let people know they know the, the, the police are there. The FBI is there. Yeah. But that was one of those where getting out of that situation without the mentalist, getting the French bank guy into the first show without the mentalist, there are certain parts they would have been hard-pressed to do otherwise. Agreed. So he was essential. Um, Dave Franco's character was kind of the the utility helper kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. He was the one – he was also the uh, the guy who could pick locks and stuff like that. He was essentially their thief. Yeah. He was needed to basically steal a couple of things here and there, to leave a couple of clues at certain places, and uh, be kind of the, the decoy. Yeah. And so he was essential to the role. Agreed. But that leaves Elsa. Her character, I forget what her character- uh, Henley. 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 Uh, she was the escape artist. I don't think there was any point at which she escaped. No, but the uh, the first 
con, the one in uh, Las Vegas. The idea, allegedly, because they'd say later that they're carrying out the plan they were given. But the idea we're supposed to have at Las Vegas, because we don't know this, is that the escape artist put together the whole transporter helmet and escape into the vault. Ah. So you can't believe that this team put together this act unless they have an escape artist. I'll buy that. I'll buy that. I was wondering what her role was, but her experience with those sorts of mechanisms, whether she built it, designed it, whatever, she knows how to operate the thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'll buy that. Now, what I didn't like is we send a guy into a vault in Paris to empty it from Vegas because we have the magic blue helmet. The, the teleportation helmet. Yeah, but we don't retrieve him. He's clearly a criminal. But we interrogate him there in Las Vegas really soon thereafter. Yeah. And he's adamant that he got teleported. I just think we should have retrieved him. Yeah, they could have addressed that a little better. I don't think it was essential to, to the plot. I love when Morgan Freeman's character is walking the FBI through how this happened, reproduces the, the trick, and Ruffalo kind of drops into the vault below. I love not only Ruffalo dropping into the vault below, but I love when the vault door swings open and Morgan Freeman walks through saying, I prefer to take the stairs to Paris. Yes. To which I'm thinking the guy just literally dropped down. It took you a few, about a minute to walk to the center of the stage to get to this point. Yeah. You walk down those steps really quickly, buddy. Yeah. What I love, though, is also in various points when we get back to the apartment, they've got mock-ups and dioramas of that set, uh, mm -hmm. that that arena stage set thing, the uh, theater in uh, um, New Orleans, New Orleans, the building, uh, a Lego version of the building for five points. Yeah, that was nice. Uh, there's there's the floor plan for the the uh, New Orleans theater on the wall. Yeah, I mean they clearly over the year from when they got picked to when this starts happening did their homework and knew what they were doing. Yeah, you know had the the prep time. And that attention to detail, I really enjoyed. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not really stated or clear how they got the Michael Caine multimillionaire character to fund them. Just that he's the pocketbook behind the Four Horsemen. They basically talk about that a little at the beginning of the uh, the Las Vegas show, where they said, hey, we could do something like, any, you know, no others or whatever. Yeah. They, they give the backstory... A little bit, but they basically convinced him we could be the next big thing. You could make a lot of money off of us. Yeah, but they won't say how they prove it or how they convinced him that four street magicians in one year could go from being street magicians, basically. Henley was a little more than that, but they were all very low rung to we could be the next David Copperfield within a year. I think all of them, though, had enough of, a f aside from uh, Franco's character, uh, had enough of a reputation that if you went with a good pitch, mm. and the presumption is they had that pitch, yeah, that the four of them could be something more than than what they were individually. Yeah, um, I was always trying to figure out where this four horsemen um, uh, uh, icon or diagram, you know, the yeah. the, the logo came from. Yeah, because it just seemed random. Yeah, a couple of of rectangles or whatever in an odd shape. It didn't seem to. I mean, if if there if there's some meaning behind it, it was lost on me. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. Um, but the the writing was was good in this. There was a lot of clever dialogue, some great scenes. It was excellent material for the actors. Oh, it was. And they had an excellent cast. 
because I mean the four horsemen were all very solid actors. Yeah. Um the the FBI, the Morgan Freeman, Michael Caine's characters, all of those were really well done. And there's enough of there's somebody else motivating all of this. Who could it be? Mm-hmm. And at one point, it could have been almost any one of the other characters. Yeah. And when we get the reveal, it's it's Ruffalo there at the end. They sell it. Yes. You know, because, you know, it gets to the point where, where Morgan Freeman's character has clearly been framed. He's in jail. He's trying to convince Ruffalo, the FBI agent, he's been framed. And he can prove it. Mm. And he's got information to bargain with for his freedom. Yeah, and Ruffalo's, yeah, you don't have, you're not, essentially, you're not telling me anything I don't know. You've always thought you were one step ahead of me. Prove it. Well, and what's great is as one or two of the pieces are pulling together as to why would somebody do this, mm. you know, they've they've made a fool of the FBI. It's almost like it was an inside job, at which point he's re- uh, Morgan Freeman's character is realizing it could have been Ruffalo's character. Yeah. And at this point, Ruffalo, from inside the lock cell, has gotten out. Yeah. And even with all that, Morgan Freeman can't figure out why Ruffalo's character would do it. And what I loved is Ruffalo just basically taunts him with, and that's what you're going to spend your days wondering. Yeah. What didn't you see? How did you miss this? How is it you were, in truth, two steps behind me when you always assumed you were one step ahead? If you're, if you're so smart... Why haven't you figured this out? And just walks off. Yeah. I mean, it's not the classic kind of Mission Impossible sort of an ending where the guy's like, what the hell happened to me? And who did it to me? Freeman's characters are very much wondering what the hell happened to him, but he knows the person who did it, but not why, because he doesn't know the real person that did it. Yeah. He knows the, the FBI alias. Yeah, he knows the facade. And we get a, a good scene at the end that kind of ties that off. Well, it's funny because Ruffalo does two scenes at the end, and he he ties off his own plot line in two very different ways. Well, th- three, really, because the first is the Morgan Freeman, okay, then the Four Horsemen, and then the, uh, yeah. the Interpol agent. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because when he does the bit with the Four Horsemen, he leaves them convinced that this Eye of Hor- Horse Society is real. And it may be. I mean, to me, I'm, I always thought this was a movie that would have... Uh, be fun to do a, another story in that universe but it was never clear to me exactly what that next story should be yeah which is part of why i wanted to re-watch this before watching the sequel yeah because i know they've got one or two new actors and a few things like that but it's like you've got this team of four magicians that work well as a team not perfectly there's a little friction here and there but they've already proven they can do i don't say miracles but but very intricate plans heists mm-hmm. that that defy believability yeah so there's a lot you could do with that team mm-hmm. the question is what do they choose to do with that team yeah you know is it a revenge story from from morgan freeman's character's point of view is there another mission they get sent on what's it mean to be part of this this great magic society that presumably dates back to the days of e- ancient egypt or whatever yeah so there's a lot of directions they could go and if, if they've got a, a script that has the fun, the showmanship, the tight writing, the, the fun plot, the, the, the okay, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what's happening next aspect. Well, and that's the thing. The showmanship and the explaining along the way. This is how they did that. But what are they going to do next? And will it make what they accomplished there make sense? Well... 
when in the second show they do the rabbit in the box, rabbit vanishes from the box, and then explain that. Yeah. That was so we had a piece of information we would need for where did the big safe go in this one room. Yeah. And granted, we don't even think to apply it at that point because a guard walks in saying, yeah, we just took it out of here. Yeah. Now, presumably that guard was a plant. Or the mentalist had gotten to him. Or the mentalist had gotten to him. There's a few things they could have spelled out a little better, but the thing was, at the point we're getting that explained to us, it's not the team that's explaining it, it's Morgan Freeman's character that's explaining it, which gives always the wiggle room of it was explained wrong because he's not as smart as he thinks he is. Yeah. Um, the other th- scene that I think was a lot of fun because it really showed just some good skill on the actor's part mm-hmm. was when they're in the apartment, the FBI is rushing in, Three of the four horsemen have taken off, and the kid is essentially there alone. He's up on a bookcase hiding. He's quietly moving down. He's moving around. I mean, yeah. the the physicality of those scenes. You know, some of the best dancers I've ever met and seen were magicians. Mm-hmm. You've got to have a certain control of your movement and your body, mm-hmm. uh, both in terms of dexterity and other things like that. To uh, to really pull off some of this stuff. Yeah. One of the technical conferences I've been to, one of the speakers uh, has done programming and is, you know, got some skills there. His day job? Mm-hmm. Magician. Mm. Love to know what he thinks of, of these movies. Yeah. Just because watching him do some of the card tricks, the sleight of hand, that kind of stuff, you, you get the idea of the mindset and... This is all deception. There's an aspect of not dishonesty, but manipulation. And he gave a talk actually on um, essentially how to apply those sorts of principles kind of sort of the workplace, mm. you know, how to, I don't say get what you want that way, but you know, how to manage your manager sort of a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the scene on the airplane where uh, Atlas is out to prove what a great mentalist he could be. Yeah, he, uh, Woody Harrelson's character looked at him. He says, oh, don't do that mentalist thing. Oh, what do you mean? Anyone could do it. It's just this, that, and the other. Oh, prove it. Read me. And they basically set up the, the, the conversation such that it's like, oh, can't you're no, not fair. I'll do I'll do Henley. Basically engineering it to where Michael Caine's character says, no, no, do me. Yeah. And of course, he fumbles it, trying to guess his his childhood dog's name, his, his mother's brother's name, whatever. And Kane's character, oh, you're, you know, you're totally wrong. It was this, that, and the other. Mm-hmm. Which is basically giving them all the answers they need to the, and this is, again, social engineering. Yeah. To the security questions to change, like, your password on the bank account. Mm-hmm. Mother's maiden name, childhood pet, where did you go to school? I mean, the out-of-wallet questions. Well, it's funny how many of those little uh, stupid graphic-based games, and game isn't quite the word for it, but uh, they go around Facebook constantly. Mm-hmm. And it's, do you know what your dragon name is, your elf name, your oh. whatever? And it's, you get the first word from the month you were born in, you get the second word from the day you were born on, you get the third word from... Mm. The whole concept of engineering a game... To basically have people give you the answers to security questions. Yeah. Out of just the fun of it. Yeah. Uh, scary concept, but clearly it's out there in the real world. Yeah. Oh, it, I've 
at least four times in the past month, I've seen on Facebook the, hey, wouldn't it be fun to know where all my Facebook friends were born? Mm -hmm. And again, frequent security question. Yeah. Well, and when they're basically giving away this guy's money on stage and he's like, how did you do this kind of a thing? It's like, well, we couldn't have broken into your account. We would have needed to know this, that, and the other. And clearly you wouldn't tell us. You're too smart for that. Yeah. Really putting him in his place. Yeah. And what was fun is that was the New Orleans show they gave. And they also revealed that everybody in the audience was not picked at random. Mm. These were all people who lost a lot in Katrina and stuff. And it was this guy's insurance company that didn't pay out. Yeah. And at first, it looks like people are getting random amounts of money. But it's the amounts they tried to claim for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Again, that sort of Robin Hood aspect. Yeah. And later we find out that the bank in Paris that got robbed is the bank that held the funds for his insurance company. Mm-hmm. There was a moral ambiguity to a lot of characters. Doing the wrong things for the right reasons or the right things for the wrong reasons. And it's fun. It's interesting. It's a movie that I've seen it now once on the cruise ship, once when I first got the Blu-ray, and now again. So at least three times. And it's it's a ton of fun every time. Um, is it, you know, an airtight script? No. There are a couple of things here and there. They could either explain a little better or I could really challenge whatever. But it's more, uh, I don't say on the line of nitpicks, it's something that holds water well enough Mm -hmm. to be a really fun movie and i don't need it to be airtight it's just at no point during this am i ever getting smacked in the face with cheese if they would just do this it's so obvious they should do that there was no point during the movie where i wanted to look at my watch and see how far in i was or how much was left was there any point at which you questioned just how stupid one of the characters were no. that's what always gets me yeah to me the what time is it is more a question of pacing Frequently, it's either pacing or something has just jarred me out of the movie. Yeah, because I've had a couple of movies where it's just it's chugging along, it's chugging along. They hit this one scene, and it's just suddenly the movie screeches to a halt, and it's like, well, let me know when you start back up. Yeah. You know, and I felt the pacing here was really good. The tracking the writers did of, of the flow of time felt natural. Yeah. Now, the first time I saw it on the ship... I remember realizing very early on, Ruffalo was probably the mastermind. I don't know why. I just remember being aware really early on, and I think it was about the time they revealed that a magician had died 30 years earlier, and thinking, well, that track's about right to be the age of a father to one of the cops investigating, and yeah. it happened in the U.S. There was clearly the... Uh the dead magician of the previous generation, mm -hmm. and that has been mentioned two or three times, it must be relevant, mm -hmm. who's the kid? Yeah, and it didn't track to any of the four horsemen. I never really pegged Ruffalo. There's One of the things I was watching for this time is, you know, he's he's clearly got this persona he's taken on. Is he? Does he ever break character or otherwise kind of cheat, you know what I mean? And I never felt he did. The one thing that got me, and I actually called it out to you after I got sick and tired of it, was in the apartment towards the end, and it was soon after the scene where you were saying mm -hmm. uh, Franco's character did the great job on top of the bookcase and stuff. Um, 
Ruffalo and another FBI agent are there in the apartment. And he kind of tangles up the one guy's arms mm -hmm. in his jacket, shoves part of the jacket down in the garbage disposal. He shoves something else first, though, uh, a metal strainer or something, okay. I think, just to make sure the guy wouldn't get hurt, I think. Yeah, and then turns on the garbage disposal. And that goes on forever. That actor who played that FBI agent uh, has had a regular role uh, for a couple of seasons on House of Cards on Netflix. Don't get me wrong, he did a great job in that scene, but I was starting to get worried about his fingers. Yeah. There were, uh, what I love about that scene is as that's going on, Franco's fighting Ruffalo's character, and it's like, okay, he's he's on the ground, Ruffalo's not, this isn't going well. He could either go for the gun or some cards, I think. He goes for the cards and, and you know, goes with his hands empty, flips them, and suddenly they've got four cards, five cards each, and Ruffalo just kind of looks at him like, Really? You're going to give me a magic trick right now? Kind of a... Yeah. What are you thinking? And he's like, yeah, uh-huh. And then he flings one at him and cuts him on the yeah the side of the face or whatever. And then he realizes, that hurt. Yeah. And then another couple of cards and he's, you know, blocking and stuff. It's... Yeah. Using that kind of, of aspect of the magic for the characters uh, was fun. Yes. It takes this from a heist film to something more than that. Yeah. And... There's a kind of a, a mid-credits scene where the, the horsemen wind up outside of, I guess, Vegas at what looks like their new playground, essentially. Yeah. Um, with some, some boxes, you know, equipment they're opening up or whatever. Kind of a what's their next world tour going to be almost. And there's an aspect that has me wondering how much of this is just going to be more tech-based stuff or is there is there that another level of something that really does seem to be more magical? Yeah. Um, again, curious where they go with, with the... Well, and will they go after someone again? Will they have another Robin Hood target? Are there rules for the society? What yeah. you can, can't do? Who's calling the shots? Is there really a society? Is it just Ruffalo's character? Yeah. You know, what happens? It's... Uh, Did he use a, a legend or a myth to get these four people to do what he needed done? What yeah. he couldn't do alone? Yeah. Don't know. Uh, again, looking forward to, to seeing the next one and finding out. Me too. Anything else on this one? No, I think you're good. Cool. So we've just finished watching Now You See Me 2. Mm-hmm. And the plot line was kind of sort of what I was expecting, kind of sort of not so much. Would you sum it up as revenge or not? It was, there was a revenge story to be had. Okay. It was, I was expecting it to be Mormon, Morgan Freeman's character. It was not. It was Michael Caine's. Okay. Oh, yeah. There were many things that were very obvious kind of reversals on what had happened before, as is a common technique for sequels. Mm -hmm. In the first movie, the first act, they convinced somebody they'd been teleported around the world. In this movie, uh, somebody convinces them they've been teleported around the world. Yeah. Now, to their credit... They had actually wound up halfway around the world, so that, that sold it a little bit right there. Yes. And they were pretty quick to figure out what had gone on. Yeah. We get um, a couple other characters that were, were interesting additions. Uh, Daniel Radcliffe, who played Harry Potter as the son of Michael Caine, or illegitimate son. I was gonna. I was thinking you could just leave it as, as played Harry Potter. <laughs> As a, a tech genius, kind of, again, going against type, he's the science versus magic sort of 
aspect there. Who faked his death a year ago because he got the idea from the Four Horsemen. Yeah, and their big show at the end is revealing he's not dead, bringing him back from the dead, resurrecting him. Yeah, because he did that to Jack in their first show of the movie. Mm-hmm. And... The theme, in some respects, of this movie is an eye for an eye. And very much. I, I kind of waited for them to go to the cliche of the problem with an eye for an eye is everyone ends up blind. Well, and they use the eye for an eye a couple of times with Morgan Freeman's character making it seem like he's the one out for revenge when the reveal at the end is that he had been working with Lionel Shrike, the, mm. the magician who had died 30 years hence. And the movie starts out with some of that backstory. What bothered me is it didn't match what we had seen from the first movie. Yeah. You know, obviously different actor. Okay, I get that. But in the first movie, the footage I thought we saw had um, Dylan staying at home at the apartment. His dad goes off. Whereas in this movie, we get the footage of him seeing his father die. Yeah. And dad had given him the watch at the apartment. Whereas he's got a watch, but it's... But it's not dad's. Yeah. It may be one likes dad's, but it it was a different watch, I think. Yeah. So there were a few things there that were a little, um, I don't say retcon but, uh, you know... Inconsistent. Inconsistent. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had mixed feelings about Woody Harrelson playing a dual role, um, and we get the brother of his, his character. Yeah. And there was one point where I thought for sure they were going to literally swap the two versus both of them being mentalists and one kind of game, both at one point gaming the other one. Yeah. You know, doing the, the, the mind control there. Uh, Henley is not in this movie because uh, the, the actress was, was pregnant. They've got somebody else filling very much that kind of a role. Mm-hmm. And I think the story was written prior to them kind of knowing that because I felt some of the subplot stuff, obviously the introduction of the character in mm. the romance angle uh, with uh, the... Jack. Jack um, was different than it would have been if it had been Henley. Yeah. But the trick at the end of, of killing the bird and stuff like that felt like something she would have done. I'm just thinking of at the Okta performance where Lula does the uh, the carving knife into the arm. That's not a Henley thing. That was very much a Lula thing. Only because they set Lula up that way, but if you go for the escape artist, saw the woman in half sort of a thing. Okay, yeah. Yeah. It was a little... Gross. Gross. But they did a good job setting her up as being on par with the others. Yeah. So it felt like some of those scenes were needed to establish the replacement character. Yeah. Now, there's a third movie coming out in uh, 2017, 2018, and that character is coming back, it looks like. Well, well, part of what was going on in this movie is that the horsemen are very unhappy about being wanted fugitives. Yeah, they're living in hiding, and that wasn't what they thought the deal was. Yeah, they thought that they were joining the Eye and becoming famous. They were going to be the David Copperfields of the magic world. Mm-hmm. And instead, they can't show their face in public. And for people who thrive on the approval of a crowd. Yeah, who need that audience reaction. Yeah. Robbing them of that audience is is rough. Uh, speaking of Copperfield, he, I believe, was a uh, producer on this. He was in the credits. He was in the credits, yeah. Uh, either as an executive producer and or consultant, some such. 
Um, but I thought the magic that they showed here felt a lot more, frankly, believable. I thought the scene towards the end with the rain, and they'd set up back in Macau, the seeing rain mm-hmm. go up, but doing it out on a square with uh, rain machines, uh, rain sprinkler machines, I guess, and strobe lights and stuff. That was just beautifully filmed. Yes, it was really well done. And um, Eisenberg just does a a great job selling. Yeah, yeah, because it's not just the, I can make rain go up instead of down. I can freeze the rain. I can fling my fingers forward and throw the rain and almost do a dance performance where the rain follows my fingertips. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he really sold that one. What I loved was at the end when he had to bail out of there, you know, he falls back and just kind of splashes to nothing. Yeah, that was beautiful. There were a few of those sorts of moments uh, when Jack does, he's done a live three-card Monty with actual full-size people in playing cards. They explain how that's done. But then when he throws all the cards up and vanishes as they come down. Yeah. Those are the things. It's like, man, I'd like to see how they did that. Yeah, the ultimate 52-card pickup. Where he disappears behind the falling cards. Because at one point we saw David Copperfield. Yeah. Which we mentioned when we recorded the f- about the first movie. But one of the tricks he did was vanish from on stage and wound up like halfway in the audience. Yeah. So, you know, they've got ways of doing this. Yeah. Um, now, whether David Copperfield has a twin brother that, you know, we just don't know about to do some of this, quite possible. I'd feel sorry for that twin unnamed copperfield yes <laughs> i mean imagine going through life copperfield as... incognito yes yes well as long as only one of you goes out in public at a time you're good can you imagine the shrink sessions for that person i feel like i live in my brother's shadow i feel like no one truly sees me i would feel for the shrink because <laughs> i've got to imagine at least one out of ten times it's copperfield himself <laughs> Not the unnamed brother. Uh, I mean, there are things you could do if you had essentially that stunt double. Yes. And, but the vanishing in front of a bunch of people, that's a bit harder to do. Yeah. So they had some some great effects, uh, great magic tricks like that. There were things that, again, the failed crashing of the, the Okta tech yeah. you know, reveal was a good show. The, the big show at the end was good. Those kind of echoed the uh, the previous film. Well, the first film, we wondered who is the mastermind that the four horsemen are following, because we realized someone brought them together. This one at the failed Okta launch, uh, Dylan gets outed as he's mm-hmm. not an FBI agent. He's either the fifth horseman or an FBI mole for the horseman. But either way, yeah, he's he's not on the up and up with the FBI. Well, but there was also the question of they're getting outed, somebody's going after them, who is in charge of that? Yeah. And at first, it seems like it is Woody Harrelson, his character's brother. Then he's reporting to Daniel uh, Ratcliffe, he's reporting to Kane, mm-hmm. and then it's kind of a, there's always that other reveal. Yeah. You know, and where does Morgan Freeman's character fit in all of this? Yeah, because he's, he's definitely taunting them possibly threatening them he's definitely a red herring throughout what i liked about this is it took place 18 months later Mm. and very much was continuing certain elements from the first movie with again michael Caine, morgan freeman's character and so forth 
definitely explored consequences. It felt like a second book in the series, Mm -hmm. not a sequel of let's take these characters and just go in a different direction. Yeah. That having been said, the tag scene at the end of the last movie where they've got this equipment and stuff like that in this this, uh, warehouse or this, this place out in Vegas never gets directly touched on. Yeah. This was written by somebody different. Yes. Yeah. But I think that's the problem of having a scene at the end where it's a, this is where we're going to go next. I think it was more of a, these characters stay together. And they needed something. And I'm not saying that the scene was a bad idea. I'm just saying they set up almost a new base of operations for them. And at the end of this movie, we've got a similar kind of a thing going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the difference was where this movie started, we get this the shot of the staircase, which has very much kind of that eye look to it as we get Morgan Freeman's voiceover. Mm-hmm. So it gives it a bookend kind of a feel for the movie, which works. But it also potentially anchors them a little bit Mm. in terms of where they go for the next film now we get uh in addition to the new team member we get uh, two other people that make sense to bring back as kind of supporting characters as well as again the brother Mm -hmm. who's kind of going to jail at the end but only for three to five years probably he was one i expect to see again mainly because you're already going to have woody harrelson true so it's not like an extra actor. Well, one of the things I thought they did a good job with and played fairly believably uh, was throughout, and it started in the first movie and played up in this one, they had the various magicians trying to learn from each other and trying to pick up one another's skills. That I agree with, but that was actually one of the things I would almost put in the flaw category for this film. Well, if you're talking about the card scene when they took the well, there's, chip. There's two card scenes. The first, when we see that Jack has been trying to teach uh, uh, Woody Harrelson's character, whose name I keep forgetting apparently, uh, how to do the card throwing thing. Yeah. And he's, it's a year later and he still can't do it. Yeah. And then it's a, well, we need it for the the the, the, the heist essentially. And then they show them working on it. They do a montage of them working on it in Macau. Exactly, but after a year of him failing, within a few a day or two, he's picked it up. Yeah, okay. That I had a problem with. And then basically, they're going after a tech chip, which is about the size of a playing card, which they can affix to a playing card, and do all their sleight of hand with it. So apparently it's got a little flexing to it. Yeah. But what gets me is as they're being searched in this, this room, because it's clear something's up with them, They're, you know, doing all the sleight of hand stuff, flinging it across the four of them and stuff left, right, and center. That scene went on four times longer than it should have, in my opinion. It was a good scene, but they spent too much time setting it up and far too long playing it out. Yeah. And it's the kind of thing, if it had been done in... I mean, one of the things I've always thought they should do with the Mission Impossible movies is have one where it's basically, there's an EMP... All your all your tech toys are dead, mm-hmm. and you've got a mission to do. Have it happen to be in Vegas. Bring in, you know, a, a, a impromptu expert, and I would have it be the son of Paris. That was the Martin Landau mm-hmm. character. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, no, that was uh, Roland Ham was the Martin Landau character. Right, right. Uh, it, Spock. It was uh, Leonard Nimoy. Yeah. So I would have Zach Quinto play the son, just for the fun of it. 
But have it be something where, again, you've got the sleight of hand, you've got the magic stuff. Yeah. And I think if they had done it, you would have had that play out in a very believable, oh, yep, they're getting the pat down, he's got to go flip it from one to the other, whatever. Whereas this, it was going across the three of them, it was always getting to where it was going to go to Woody Harrelson, he's like, no, no, I'm not good at this. And that was, it felt like a five minute scene. Well, and it was flying like 10 feet across the room at times, and four guards were oblivious. There were at least four guards. There were the four horsemen that they were getting patted down and stuff individually. And they would always be showing it at one point where I'm like, how come none of the other guards are seeing this? Yeah. You know, it defied rationale. Yeah. It um, it was a good concept. It was a flawed execution. And that bothered me a little bit. It took me a little out of the story. Yeah. You know? Well- I liked that uh, Jack was able to hypnotize uh, Harrelson, Merrick's brother. Mm-hmm. Merrick, that's the character. Yeah, yeah. The last name, yeah. Yeah, uh, when they got to London. I knew the moment his brother bumped into somebody that Woody Harrelson had basically thrown his brother into. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, the person he bumped into matters. My first guess was he threw him into Dylan. Yeah, Ruffalo's character, Dylan. Yeah. You know, because we'd see him in the hoodie so often and this yeah. one had a hood up. But then he turns immediately calls Ruffalo. There were a few things with the timeline at that point that felt just a little awkward. But I was also expecting at that point that the the twin brothers had swapped places. Yeah. And that the horsemen had kind of planted one of theirs in the enemy camp. Yeah. And frankly, I was disappointed when that didn't happen. You know, the whole faking out of uh, the airplane flight at the end, when we see a couple of, you know, curtain type things going on in the hangar, it's like, yeah, this is what's going on. Yeah. I figured as soon as they had the flashlights in Michael Caine's face, I'm like, yeah, you're a multimillionaire. Your employees wouldn't do that to you. Something is up here. Yeah. But it worked. Um, Yeah. Now, how you got the plane in the fake hangar onto a barge or the fake hangar is the barge and the van pulled up and you don't notice the fact that you never feel any kind of a rocking as the barge is going down because the, the thames they're doing so much with the spraying of the water and the fans to create the sense of flight so the sense of flight trumps the rocking of the water is the argument i don't know if i believe it but that's what we're supposed to believe okay so somehow on incredibly short notice like a day mm-hmm. you set up a water uh, front warehouse with a plane that looks like this guy's plane mm. on a, a gimbal kind of a thing so you can fake out the whole flight movement sort of thing. And it's doing enough movement to, to convince somebody they're in the air, but not so much as to literally rock the boat. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, okay, movie magic, I'll, I'll give them a little leeway. It made for a good reveal at the end a good floating show yeah and again very reminiscent of kind of the five corners wrap up in the the first movie yeah so i think they've got good characters good writing i think they did a sequel that held true to the original Mm -hmm. had a couple of the needed changes add a few new characters here and there a couple of uh reversals some of which were a little more obvious than others Well, and this was definitely a we're watching out for the people. It wasn't Robin Hood in so much as take money from the rich and give to the poor. 
but was very much a, these people are developing technology for the purpose of stealing your private information and stealing the things you hold dear and using it against you in some way. Well, they establish that the society has a code, Mm. you know, that just like it was founded on sleight of hand and stealing to feed the people who were being starved. Yeah. It's kind of do right by society. Yeah. You know, do it a little showy maybe sometimes, but in entertainingly, but it, it gives this a very clear identity that's in, in tone and style that's different from any other sort of heist film. Mm-hmm. And there are very few heist films that have gone on to be a, a franchise. Yeah. Ocean's Eleven is the one I can think of. Yeah. And there's talk of a reboot of that with uh, all-female cast. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, could work, might not, don't know. But this is a franchise that third movie in the works, um, they could keep going with this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's fun, it's interesting, it's entertaining. Um, I just, I think with each film, it would get harder and harder to write the next one. Yeah. I felt the first movie was stronger for me than the second. It was simpler in some ways. It was simpler and it was a blank slate. Well, for me, it was a more compelling mystery. I would agree with that. Who has brought these people together to achieve what? Whereas here, there's, it was proactive. This is reactive. Yes. There's a lot of things in this one that are reacting to events of the previous film, filling in the gaps in one or two places. One or two characters from the first film just vanished. Yeah. The Interpol agent specifically. Yes. Not a, a critical flaw or whatever, but it's something that while watching this, it's hard to not compare it to the first movie. If for no other reason than half the time the news footage we're seeing in the film about the horseman is comparing it to yeah. the first movie. Yeah. Well, and in the first movie, being the horseman had brought these four characters together united them they were not necessarily the best of buds Mm -hmm. but there was definitely sort of a unifying force in being the horseman whereas in this one there was a lot more of a bickering disagreement on who to trust disagreeing on what ends they were out to meet disagreeing on who their leader was the team had fallen apart yeah Uh, american jack uh, were hanging out and learning from each other but Atlas uh, had broken up with, or Henley had left Atlas. Yeah. And he was a little on the outside with the other two. And he didn't want to follow Dylan. He didn't yeah. trust Dylan's leadership. The question is, with where they leave off with the five united, can they really pull things together? Um, when you bring Henley back in and you get to a team of six. Well, and they seemed to be more united in following Dylan once they realized who his father was. And that he did have that magic background. That and when he took it, put himself at risk to save the team. Yeah. When he had to go to great lengths to go do that. Yeah. You know, and I think that was also kind of the behind the scenes machinations of uh, the Morgan Freeman character. Yeah. Because Thaddeus was very much orchestrating things from behind the scenes as is revealed at the end. And that reveal is very much along the lines of... of Wait. It's interesting. Dylan's reveal in the first movie. Yeah, well, it's interesting because at the beginning, you think Thaddeus is out on a mission of revenge. Mm -hmm. And in truth, he's on a mission of redemption. Yeah. In every sense. 
complete with realizing that uh, that Dylan may end up in the safe and wanting to make sure he has something up his sleeve. Mm-hmm. Was that so much his doing, or was that... Um... He's partnered with the grandmother at the Macau Magic Shop. We see that at the end. Fair point. And how else would she have realized this is Shrike's son? How did Michael Caine's character and Ratcliffe's character get the safe? Her. Because they got the prototype from her shop. We saw them picking it up. Yeah. And Thaddeus has to have known that was the plan. Yeah. I just, I don't know where they would or should go for a third movie, but again, I want to f- want to watch a third movie. Yeah, I want, I want that defense on behalf of society and the citizens, that Robin Hood fight for the common man aspect. They've got to maintain that or they break the franchise. Yeah. Also, I think having uh, David Copperfield's uh, involvement benefited this movie. Yeah. I think there were aspects of the first that very much had the theatrical stage magic feel to it. This one, I think, had that a bit more. Yeah. And the the stunts they did were something that felt like you could just luck into the street magician kind of a thing. And, and in other words, if you happen to be at the right place when one of these guys showed up, yeah, what they did, okay, I get it. It makes sense. The life-size three-card Monty was fantastic. Well, and that seemed something very David Copperfield-ish. Yeah. Take a, a classic magic trick, raise it to a new level physically, mm-hmm. you know, and then play that. And again, where they were showing, hey, we had doubles, we had people swapping in and out. Yeah. You know, it was, it, they played fair, but it, it felt classic magic with a, a new spin. Yeah. It also felt like something that for where the audience in the movie was sitting worked but how could you do that kind of live performance without having people on the edges who know what's going on? Yeah. You know? Um, but again, there was they've already got plants in the audience to, to facilitate the thing. Mm-hmm. So presumably anyone who would have had a uh, opposing view or whatever would have been blocked. It just, for that kind of live performance ad hoc that's gone viral. Yeah. And that people are on the lookout to go viral. It just seems like you're going to have people from windows, from ledges, from wherever watching and wanting to debunk. Yes. But again, movie magic will will let that slide. Um, as a as a sequel goes, I think it maintained the quality, tone, style uh, without feeling like just a retread of the first movie or losing sight of the first movie. Yeah. And that's that's a, a, a tough balance to maintain. Yeah. There's a narrow path. Where if you veer too far off, it's like, did you not know what the first movie was? Yes. And if you follow too closely, it's like, do you not know we saw the first movie? Yeah. So I enjoyed this. Like I said, looking forward to a second film. Third. Third film. This is the second film, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Looking forward to a third, fourth, however many they want to do. No, I agree. They're good characters. And I think they could go for a while. This is one that if you got the right cast and the right writing staff would make for a very interesting television show. Yeah, it would. But you would have to have people that are kind of like uh, the, the writing staff from Leverage. That's exactly what I was thinking. Who's also doing the librarians right now. you got to have, have a really good writing staff, but you've also got to have a very good production company and a couple of people involved that are just well-versed in magic. Yeah. Um, definitely something I could see come into television. It'd be fun. Yeah. 
That would be cool. So anything else? Is that pretty good? I think that does it. Cool. The show notes and form for this podcast can be found at www.comicbookpage.com under the podcast and forum sections of the website. Please email us at theguys at comicbookpage.com and let us know what you think of what was discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening.